Hello and welcome to another episode of Journey to the Rise. I'm your host, Lucretia. I want to apologize for the unintentional hiatus and delay in episodes. A project that started a couple months ago has taken much of my focus and time, but we are getting back on track. In today's episode, we talk with Eric Prince, a travel photographer who is not afraid to go after what he wants. That chutzpah has helped him curate a successful career. Eric is living proof if you go after what you want and don't give up, it is possible to live your dream. And that dream can take you places you never imagined. His time in the military took him around the world and his interest in photography sprouted a successful career. Eric is also not afraid to openly discuss and talk about the hard topics. He doesn't shy away from uncomfortable conversation and he carries them with class. Because of his willingness to tackle these conversations, it opens up for an opportunity to really dive into the depths of topics that are typically avoided. We get into some of that dialogue with Eric and I feel when we're open to these conversations, we can understand and respect each other just a little bit better. So get ready to be inspired. Please welcome Eric Prince. If you ever want to feel inspired, I highly recommend you go to this man's Instagram page. If you want to feel drawn into a place, definitely hit up his YouTube. It is so much fun to watch. This is probably the closest I'll ever get to royalty. I'm so excited to have Eric Prince on the show today. Eric, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks for that introduction, man. That made me blush. Jeez. <laughs> Well, I'm just so honored to have this chance to have a conversation, um, and I just want to kind of dive right in. Where did you grow up? Oh, I grew up in Cleveland, uh, Cleveland, Ohio, uh, by way of Texas. So uh, everybody always asks me where I'm from, and I always just say Texas, because mm -hmm. that's where I became an adult. I, I joined the military, and they stationed me in Texas, became a Texas resident in Texas, but I actually grew up in Cleveland. Oh, wow. Okay. So what caused the transition was, did your parents have like a job change? Oh no, I joined the military. So I moved oh, to Texas when okay. I was 18. Oh wow, yeah. nice. Which branch of military did you join? Uh, Air Force, the best branch. Air Force. Absolutely it is. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your service. How long were you in the service? Oh, uh, 10 years, 10, 10 and a half to be exact, 10 and a half years. Wow. That's a long time to be very dedicated to the Air Force. Did you love it? Did you like it? Yeah, that's what started my travel career. Yeah, I loved really? it. Oh, I adored it. Yeah, it, it was, you know, it was one of those things I always say uh, joining the military was the best decision I made and the second best was leaving. And it was just <laughs> the right time. I joined in January 2001. So right before the world changed forever. And uh, I joined one Air Force and ended up leaving a totally different one. So wow. uh, it definitely made me who I am. Uh, gave me the tools to do what I do. I probably wouldn't be doing this career as a travel journalist without it. Really? That's amazing. When did you start to realize that you enjoyed writing and photography? I've been a writer pretty much my entire life. I, honestly, the, as far back as I can think, I was uh, I used to write short stories all the time um, and, and just kind of think from my perspective of the world. I've always been a writer. But photography started when I was around 13 years old. Um, I ended up, I was getting, so uh, I was basically getting kicked out of school because Ohio started these truancy laws. But before they went into effect, if we could take the test and we could pass them, they didn't really care that much. And I was that kid. Like, school was extremely easy for me, especially in Cleveland. Uh, so I just never went to school. I was just in the habit of just going, taking the test and just kind of doing what I needed to do, hanging out, catching, going out, having fun. But then the truancy law came in, and I was lucky enough to have a principal by the name of Mr. Wasco who happened to be really good friends with my grandfather. They grew up together in Cleveland. And he gave me two choices. He said, either I get expelled or join a vocational program. And this was back when, I'm not sure how Shaw, Shaw High, I went to Shaw High School in East Cleveland. I'm not sure how it is now, but back then it was uh, half academic, half vocational. So at that point, all the vocational programs had, were really full up. So I couldn't go, I wanted to go to do uh, barbering 
couldn't do that. I want to go to culinary arts, couldn't do that. Uh, everything was just filled up. The only thing was commercial arts. I can't paint, I can't draw, I can't sculpt, I can't do anything, but they had a spot. So I joined uh, commercial arts, and my my teacher, Ms. Irene Schinkel, at the time, on Wozniak now, because uh, she realized very quickly I couldn't paint, I couldn't draw, I couldn't sculpt, <laughs> I couldn't do anything really artistic at all. So she gave me a camera, and she gave me a camera and said, go take pictures. And I was, uh, and this is the old days of digital, so, uh, not digital, um, a film. film. <laughs> so I go out, burn through a roll, and her teaching method was hands-on. And I think this is why I teach uh, photography the way I teach, is uh, she brought me back in and taught me how to develop, how to develop the pictures I had just taken. And as we're doing the process, she's explaining to me why things are out of focus, why things are overexposed, what proper composition is. She gives me another role. Go do the same thing. I come back. And she gives me tips on how to get better and better and change. Wow. Within six months, I was the school photographer for sports, um, dances, events. Uh, I ended up starting to make money from it. So really, my entire career started around 13 years old in high school using the school's equipment. Wow. That's amazing. That's incredible how that all fell together. I love it. What an amazing teacher. Yeah, to just kind of... Yeah, what an amazing teacher to take her time because some teachers could be like, well, here's a camera, go do this, but she really believed in you. Mm. Oh, I love yeah, that. she, I mean, she, she was one of the, and we were blessed. I, I want to say we had some, in hindsight, we had some phenomenal teachers at Shaw High School um, back, back, in, back then. You know, this is, you know, 1998, 99, 2000, uh, back when I was there. And I mean, it, the, the range of just excellent teachers back then, you know, being in, you know, almost 40 now and uh, also being a teacher myself now, I recognize the difficult situation those teachers were in and the sacrifices they made to just give us a chance, like just give us a shot to to compete in the world that was coming up uh that was rapidly changing around us wow i love that bravo to them so you go off to the air force you get done what was the next step for you figuring it out uh really towards the end of my career uh, so i joined january 2001 then 9-11 happens, and I'm basically overseas most of my career. Um, if I wasn't overseas, I was in Texas, um, or I was in Iraq, Afghanistan during the time. Um, I was stationed in Japan and Korea, uh, Germany, a little bit of time in Turkey. Uh, but I was just around the world, uh, just on the road constantly. So after I left the military, I went back to new, uh, college. I went to the University of Texas. Uh, to finish my degree. So this is, you know, I'm in my, at the time I'm 29. And it, it was definitely uh, interesting because I was on my way to law school. I was fully ready. To, I was a seat deposit away from going to law school at NYU or USC. And oh, wow. I wanted to study entertainment law. Um, and then I ended up having uh, family, uh, family changes where I wasn't able to go to law school. And I was encouraged to pursue my passion of photography and exploration and just getting out there. Um, I ended up buying a one-way ticket to London and I've been on the road ever since. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. What was your that major That was 11 years ago. That was a, 11 years ago. Uh, triple wow. major, government, uh, government, history, English with a minor in RTF, radio, television, and film. Wow, that's impressive. When did you start your blog? That was uh, 2012, 2012. Okay. Where you just and it was actually it. it was totally by accident. I never. Even... Oh so yeah, so the the blog thing wasn't it was an accident. Um, I didn't even understand the whole concept of blogging for a living or like like this is early days. Like now it's so common, but back then there were no professional travel bloggers back then. There was really. I was just doing it for fun because I started a small nonprofit uh, foundation in high school uh, called a World Beyond Youth Exploration, where the goal was to get inner city kids abroad with a camera in their hand and show them the world. Because those are the things, exploring the world in the military and using photography as my medium to show the world what I saw 
was my way of, of, of escaping, so to speak. So I wanted to give that uh, same experience to low-income kids uh, from where I grew up, you know, kids who grew up in a space of being invisible. You know, we're raised in, a, in, in if you're young and black in Cleveland in the 90s, no, you were invisible unless you were committing a crime. So I want to give these kids a, a creative outlet because I understand that everybody can't be a professional athlete. Everybody can't be a musician. But photography is one of those mediums that anybody can really learn. And I wanted to give these kids an opportunity to document the world that was around them. Um, we constantly complain that the narrative around African-American communities is written by white people and biased media. Well, you know, you have amazing luminaries like Gordon Parks and um, James Baldwin who told our story from their perspective as black men. So why can't we do the same thing now? Uh, well, and, and, you know, back then. So I started a nonprofit foundation and we had a, it was just an absolute nightmare trying to get funding for it. You know, basically, everybody was looking at it as we wanted to take a bunch of young black and Hispanic kids on a vacation. Um, as opposed to nobody saw the mentorship aspect. Nobody saw um, the partnerships we had developed with um, Canon uh, cameras and Magnum photographers out of New York. Um, we were uh, we were attached to an organization called Fracture Atlas in New York City as a, uh, a sponsored 501c3 um, charitable organization. And all people saw was, you know, black people don't travel, Latinos don't travel, this is just a vacation. So I said, to hell with it, I'll do it myself. So... I bought a one-way ticket and, and said, like, look, we do travel. We're just not in your media, <laughs> kids. Right. Like, you don't, especially back then, you know, people talk about a lack of diversity in travel media now. You should have seen it in 2000, 2001, 2002. Like, nobody knew who we were. Even fast forward to when I was coming out of University of Texas, you know, 2009, 2010, there were still very few people of color in these, uh, these publications, in Travel and Leisure, Condé Nast, um, in National Geographic. I mean, the only black people you saw in National Geographic then were African tribes with their boobies hanging out. So it was understandable that, that kind of people didn't really understand the importance of representation. And these kids seeing not only uh, people who look like them, but possibly themselves exploring the world and being able to document that. So I got out there and said, look, I'll show people this is what we do. Because there just wasn't that many of us. You know, people look at travel influencers now as like some kind of heroes and rock stars and we've always been around. No, we have not. This is a new thing. Barely, I would give it, I'd say maybe, what, six years? Five to six years, barely, that really travel influencing has really been a professional thing for people. Let's say YouTube, what, maybe 10 years, maybe, on the high end? So, like, this all is relatively new. So when I started, there was not a lot of people out actually doing it, and most of us had absolutely no idea what we we're doing. But what we did know, especially uh, me, going back to your original question, was at least there'll be one black face that people can look at and point to as like, hey, there is, there are black people, people of color, who are traveling the world. We are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll have more from our guest, Eric, and he's going to share his experience when he was used by companies to enhance their brand and what he learned from that experience. The goal for any business is to grow and reach a new level. Get there faster by being an authority in your industry with a video docu-series. Using video, you can showcase you, your business, your staff, products and services, and most importantly, your why. Building relationships is key, and a high-quality video can give existing and potential clients a way to get to know you. It also allows you to build a connection that results in increased sales. If you would like to know more about how you can enhance your business with video, contact GirlBossProductions.com today. Does your website have content that was created by your cousin Danny back in 2008? It sounds like it's time for a refresher. With Girl Boss Copywriter, we work with you to learn about you and your business. We strive to create content that will help you build community and relationships with your existing and prospective clients. With web pages that convert clicks into sales, email sequences that engage your database, you deserve to grow and build your business so that you can live the life you dreamed when you started your business. 
working as a girl boss doesn't mean you have to live the hustle culture. It means you recognize when you need to delegate tasks so you can focus on what you do best and let others do the rest. Want to know more about how to have an engaging website and utilize your email list to convert sales and grow your business? Go to girlbosscopywriter.com. Welcome back to Journey to the Rise. We continue with our conversation with Eric Prince. I love that. Yeah, absolutely. And diversity is so important. We get better perspectives. We get more rounded information than if it's just coming from one continuous source. So I love that you found a way to make an effort to change the world. It's amazing. What kind of challenges did you face when you started pursuing being a travel journalist? Honestly, I didn't even pursue it. It just kind of happened. It, wow. I, I really, and, and you know, I, I, I rail against this idea, this tokenization of uh, people of color, of diversity. Um, I, I spoke a little bit about this recently in a video, is that the travel industry is, is hypocritical. Uh, the travel industry pretends it cares about diversity, but it doesn't unless they can make money from it, which is why you generally only see any kind of diversity during Black History Month in terms of people of color or it's gay pride um, month or time that you see LGBTQIA communities. Like you're only starting to see uh, disabled travelers uh, or plus size travelers in the media. Why? Because they can make money from it. And, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's a little bit frustrating uh, because for me, I look back at when I first started and I'm like, my God, if I knew then what I know now about budgets, about representation, about access, I would have gone about my career significantly more intentionally and I would have charged a lot more. Because, <laughs> you know, to me, getting invited to go skiing in the Andes, but they aren't going to pay me. I was like, OK, I would have paid for it myself anyway and done it. So for me, that was fair compensation. Um, but in hindsight, I realized I was being used as a tool. Like a, a tool to kind of show how much you care when you really don't actually care. And so for me, I think looking back on it, that was probably my biggest problem, my biggest uh, drawback or issue was being used as some kind of a, um, as a bargaining chip, I guess, uh, for a lot of these companies. Um, a lack of uh, information. Uh, there wasn't a lot of information about things that specifically uh, impact people of color, uh, racism uh, at the at the height of the list. Um, but I also kind of look at that as a benefit because one of the things I find now is you look you you see there's this um, oversaturation of information. And it's very difficult for, for people to sift through all this information to find out what's real, um, what's fake, what's uh, subjective, what's an objective truth. Like if somebody says oh, Russia's racist, I'm like, Ugh, in my experience, ugh, it's pretty tough. But I would not, but that's a, my experience, right? That's subjective. Um, objective truth is, eh, it's a little more complicated than that. So... Early on, it would have had to been me being used by different companies and a lack of information uh, about issues specifically targeting my community. Wow. Do you remember your first assignment when you started to pursue this? It's funny because, uh, you know, I just celebrated my 10, uh, my 10 year anniversary as a travel journalist. Um, everybody keeps thinking it's like uh, I started as a travel influencer. But no, I am a travel journalist. To this day, I am a travel journalist. I am not a, a, a YouTuber. I'm not an Instagrammer or influencer. I am a journalist. I work for publications. Uh, my first job, uh, my first invoice job was something for Random House, uh, Random House Books. Um, and I ended up, uh, they used the image. I don't remember exactly the details of the job because I can't find the documentation because it was a decade ago. Uh, but the image they used was a shot uh, from Grosvenor Square in London, uh, not far from Mayfair. And I believe it was for a Charlotte Bronte uh, academic book that they were using for. They were doing wow. something with um, and but it was specifically a um, travel photography job. That's so cool. So you're in London, 
you have this really cool gig to kick you off. Where did this career take you? How did how did things evolve? Well, I guess it just it took me around the world, you know, and I'm I'm still I'm still doing it a decade later. Uh, you know, it, it really I am blessed. You know, I've, I've done interviews in the past, and and this is always one of the hardest questions because. There, there was no plan. There, like everybody now starts with this plan. They've taken travel blogging courses and all this stuff. We were just traveling back then. We did. We, there was no plan to do this for a living. I was like, okay, I'll travel for a year or two and go home and go to law school or something like that. But it just kept going. I kept getting jobs as a photographer, as a writer, as, as and it, it was like, okay, sure. Hey, can you come to India? Yeah, sure. Can you go to Malaysia? Yeah, sure. Can you come to Romania? Yeah, sure. Like, and it just kept going. It kept going. Um, I think, you know, there was the biggest job I ended up getting in the early days. I want to say this had to have been maybe 2015. I was invited to South Africa uh, for a uh, this luxury kind of project, maybe 2015, 2016. Um, and, I mean, back then, I think that job paid $3,500, uh, and which was, you know, huge money back then. I was like, oh, my goodness, let's, let's go. Um, and, and really, the, those jobs just kind of started to roll in. And it was great because... We all are, the, my generation of travel bloggers or, or influencers, you call us now, uh, we all were just figuring it out together. And we're all still, a lot of us are still good, close, personal friends now. Um, like this, you know, it's funny that I, I teach at a lot of travel conferences now, and Traverse, TravelCon, um, and seeing the new generation come up who don't have basic accounting skills. They don't know what a day rate is. They don't have contracts. Their entire existence is on Instagram Reels and TikTok. And like for us, we were like, no, build up your website. That was the biggest thing for us. And to this day, it's still huge. And I still preach it. You guys are all building, trying to build a career on somebody else's land. It's baffling to me. And then as soon as Metaverse goes down, which we see happen all the time, as soon as TikTok gets banned, which has happened before, you lose all your income. But when you own your land, something that we learned very early on, when you own your website, nobody can do anything. They can't touch you. You can't get canceled. You can't, there's no outages that you can't fix. There's, it's all under your control. How much work you put into it is how much you get out of it. You're not worried about some algorithm. You're worried about creating high quality content. And that's what we did in the early days. We only cared about creating stuff that people cared about and engaged with. And I always said, I only, all my content has to do two things when I'm not posting it. Entertain and educate. Otherwise, I'm never posting it. I love that. And I appreciate you saying that because I do see that like influencer thing happening. And when you talk to someone at your caliber, the different ones, they really emphasize what you just said. So I really appreciate you, you touching on that point because it is important. You can't rely on a social platform that does not belong to you. Yeah, they should be a feeder. Like, like social media should be nothing more than a feeder to where you want the attention. Like, I've, I've shifted. I'm doing an entire rebranding of my website um, because of COVID. Obviously, I wasn't doing very much uh, travel and work in COVID. I'm doing an entire rebranding of my website, um, and I'm doing a lot more stuff on YouTube because YouTube's actually my favorite platform. I really enjoy posting on YouTube now. But it's like Instagram feeds to that. Facebook feeds to that. And that's how it should go. Like you, you should, you shouldn't have everything. Right, go check out my other reels for the company that's not paying me any money. Like guys, <laughs> come on, you, you do better. Absolutely, and I really appreciate your YouTube channel um, because you truly are a journalist. And when you do your videos, it's not just this big flashy stuff. Like you're there telling a story, and I really appreciate the content and how you create your content on there. When did you decide to start your YouTube channel? You know, like I've been doing YouTube off and on for probably since 2012, 2013. I I, I just post very sporadically. Um, it's and, and it's, it's it's always interesting why people even think I'm an influencer because I my numbers are super low. I rarely even post on social media that much, except for Instagram stories. I post every day because I enjoy it. But when it comes to YouTube, it's like I post when I have something to show or say, like that I find to be important. So it takes me time. Like it was, 
even the 10 year anniversary thing like for me that was like a big deal and i kind of wanted to share that with people who have been with me since the beginning you know um that video is less about me and more about my audience and and, and what i've learned and 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 what they've seen me go through and and the adventure and exploration of it um my i use my youtube because i feel like especially now that's why i'm leaning deep into youtube because i think the one of the biggest issues i've have with social media is the lack of context and people don't understand how to differentiate between subjective and objective truths anymore and i think with uh i i, I was i was sparked a few years ago when i got on somebody about they posted information on i want to say this was uh maybe instagram i can't remember exactly the platform but i remember who it was very well <laughs> um he posted something that was so wrong that I couldn't ignore it. I'm like, this is wrong. And not only is it wrong, it's dangerous information. And his excuse, his his uh, rebuttal was, I only have like 60 seconds. I can't go that deep into the, the, the background of details. And my thing is like, well, you shouldn't have posted it. You shouldn't post it if you can't post the entire context of something. And that's the problem now is people have gotten so lazy with their content creation is that, and the algorithm rewards that and the audience rewards that, that they get away with these things. They get away with this half truth and this limited information. So with YouTube, I can make a 15 minute video on a lot of different subjects where you can kind of dig a little bit deeper into the context of, of, of the narrative and the feed doesn't move so quickly where people's comments get lost right so if i post something on instagram it moves so quickly that people's questions can get lost on youtube i can see the questions and actually make a video specifically about that because usually somebody else has the same question as well so you know with my youtube um, I've gone in these waves where um, I'll try out vlogging and, you know, after a while, it's just not sustainable just based on the way I travel and the work. Then I'll try to sit down and talk into the camera stuff. I'm like, oh, it's not really sustainable because I don't necessarily enjoy it or I don't have that much, uh, that, that much, uh, um, that many topics, right? Like I'll go through and I'll say I only have like six things to talk about, six 15-minute videos, and then what else do I do? Right? Because I just don't create content just for the sake of creating content, um, entertain and educate, everything. Um, but I do feel now that there's a, a wide range of subjects I can talk about within the travel space, and not only within the travel space, but specifically uh, for young men. I think there is a lack of information, context, stories, perspectives, and narratives surrounding young men. Um, and I find that a lot of more young men are trying to um, find their find their voices, find their way, find their path by traveling. And I love that. I love seeing that. So I definitely want to create more content uh, for young men because there is a massive market for solo female travel. It's literally its own massive market. Um, so I definitely want to create more things out there that specifically talk about young men. For example, I posted a really short video. I want to say it's maybe five minutes. Um, uh, I can't remember the exact title, but I said, stop going to strip clubs in Central and Eastern Europe. And within that five or six minute video, I was able to kind of break down the reasons and some of the stories and experience I've not only experienced, but seen. And I was shocked by the stories that young men were telling and older men, men in general, were telling in the comment section and just sharing because there's no other avenue, no other outlet, no other place that men can have these conversations. So I, de I definitely started to lean deeply into YouTube uh, within the last few years. But going forward, I'll definitely be doing a lot more in that space. I think YouTube, you know, a lot of people keep talking about TikTok and Instagram reels, all this. YouTube is the next five, 10 years. YouTube is number two to Google and search. It is going to be where I am and where the information is. I absolutely agree. People say YouTube is going to go away, and I, I don't agree with that. I think YouTube is growing and a great place to find information and informational videos like yours where TikTok is just so fast-paced and real grabby. Um, mm -hmm. As much as fun as TikTok can be, I, I really, I'm more on YouTube for content for exactly what you just said. Yeah, I go to YouTube to learn stuff. Like, uh, like, because, because again, 
you can go to YouTube and watch a 30 minute video on how to cook a casserole or how to change a tire. And there's just so the range of information you find on YouTube is so vast and wide. No other platform can touch YouTube right now. Yeah. I love that it's like YouTube University. I have heard of people building homes just from watching YouTube. Absolutely. Yeah. So amazing. Absolutely oh, yeah. Amazing. Oh, I've learned so much. For, I've learned how to edit videos. Like, I've learned, like, a, a, a lot of my uh, favorite photographers are YouTubers, like, like who shoot on YouTube. Like, so many different, it's just, I cannot preach YouTube University any louder. Like, it is a phenomenal place to learn. Absolutely. And on your Instagram, hashtag not sponsored. They're not sponsored. (laughs) Exactly. Not sponsored. (laughs) Your Instagram, your Instagram is absolutely beautiful. Your images are so stunning. If I want inspiration or I'm feeling just kind of in a funk, I truly go to your feed because it's just so vibrant. And I love that you don't just have a one or two line. Like you really go into depth on the post and the photo. Uh, probably because you're a journalist and you you know how to get that information in there and on one of your posts you talk about the baths in budapest and i may say this wrong but you mentioned the balneal therapy and how it isn't for everyone but it helps you relax what are these baths like for those who've never heard of them or or experienced them so you know um you know let me take it back a bit uh i lived in budapest um, and like Central and Eastern Europe was my home for quite a while. I was uh, living when so basically I spent my I split my time between Bangkok, which has been my home, uh, you know, nine years now, um, and Europe. So as I traveled around the world, I always had a base, like a place to put my stuff or or take a rest or whatnot. And I always had two of them at all times: one in Europe and one in Asia, because that's primarily where I covered in Northern Africa, Europe and Asia. So I maintained a residence in Bangkok and one somewhere in Europe uh, because Bangkok was significantly cheaper. Um, I kept my place in Bangkok, but Europe, I kind of bounced around. Uh, Bucharest, uh, Krakow, Budapest, Prague, um, uh, and that entire region. So Budapest, it it was interesting because most people go to Shishini Thermal Baths, which is the the famous one outside. um, And that was the most recent one I actually posted. We did a, a, a guy's trip um, a few months ago to Budapest, um, and that was like the most famous one, the one everybody sees on Instagram and knows. But there are a lot of baths, not only in Budapest, but Hungary, because they have a culture of, uh, they have a thermal bath culture. And one of the funniest experiences was there's a small bath town, uh, maybe five hours away from Budapest, and I went there, and it was maybe, let's say, a thousand people there was a lot of people there i was the only black person there and it was and you know there was nothing bad, negative or bad about it. people just i just happened to be the only black person and just people were so kind and welcoming and excited um and, and it was just part of the hungarian culture is that everybody can go to these waters and heal and relax and meditate and focus you can play chess the kids can go play um you can take a nap like you can soothe all those ills and it was a place of just welcome peace it was a place of peace um and you know contrast that to the insane nightlife that is budapest and you know you have this you know this yin and yang culture what makes it so special was, or is, because it's still there, is that it's something so unique to where I grew up. There's no thermal baths in Cleveland, Ohio. <laughs> like, so it was like one of those, such a uniquely uh, Hungarian thing. And then mind you, you have them in other parts of the world. Uh, Turkey is a great example. But it, when you go to the thermal baths in Budapest that are open air, you go when it's you know autumn or spring or even in the winter time and you sit there and you see the steam coming off the pools while they meet the the snowflakes in the air and dissipate it's just it's magical and it's just something that you can't recreate in any way it was like you have to go there you have to be there in middle of january early february in a blizzard while like sitting in the thermal baths and as soon as you get out you have to run and get into into your robe and then you take it off you jump back in the water and you just sit there for hours and you come out wrinkly it's just 
it's, it's therapeutic for me, not only physically, because I, I'm very conscious about my body, what goes in my body, how, my, how I treat my body, but I'm also conscious about the psychological impact of it, the peace, the very real peace and serenity that I get from being in that environment around those people um, and having that experience, uh, especially when it's contrast to the way that I grew up in, in the United States. And not only just the way I grew up, but the way I feel when I go back to the United States, even now. I love that. I think we all could use a day or two in that environment. <laughs> Mm -hmm. That's amazing. You also have a post that talks about the human role in mass tourism. And I appreciate this so much because I go hiking, I go caving, I, I like to be outdoors. And I've noticed throughout, especially the past several years, how places that used to be very few people would be there. Now it's like, it seems like they're being overrun and losing their preservation and plant life is dying because of people walking up there. How do you mm. feel about the destinations that have limited tourist activities? Oh, I think it's phenomenal. I think it's absolutely phenomenal. And I think more places should do it. Um, when they closed Maya Bay here in Thailand, I, I was for it. Uh, when they started talking about uh, banning cruise ships in Venice, I was 100% for it. Travel is a privilege. Like, it, it, it's not a right. Like, you, like, you, like, we've gotten to a point where people just really feel like they can just show up anywhere and do anything that they want. Um, we've seen, we've seen bad tourism. And, and that's easy to call out and say it's wrong and it's, it's, it's negative and we shouldn't be doing that. But it's our overall participation in mass tourism that's the problem. I get in a lot of trouble for saying this. I actually lost a few jobs for saying this. But mass tourism is a problem and all you have to do is look at Chinese tour groups. That's a problem. And it's like, and, and please don't, don't uh, nobody please take my uh, words out of context. But I like to use the example of locust uh, to describe tour groups. You have certain times of year, you have these massive groups of tourists uh, from, from China, from the United States, uh, from parts of Europe that go to these destinations, let's call it Southeast Asia, um, Central South America, uh, Northern Africa. And they go and they consume. They consume everything. They consume the sun. They consume the sand. They consume the food. They consume the energy. They consume all of these things. And then they go away with no second thought about how that consumption impacts the local community, how that impacts the local culture, how that impacts the local people's way of life and quality of life. And the, the belief in a lot of places that these massive waves of tourists come from is money equals benefit it's not true especially in your example when it comes to nature nature does not give a damn about money it does not care but once you step on that plant it's gone once you create a path through this field it's there forever it's done you and it's and it's and it's sad because i am an advocate for travel i think everybody should travel as long and as far as they possibly can but we have to do it in a way where the generation that comes after us can also do it. Where we have this, and I've worked for these companies. I've, I've worked for Delta Airlines. I've worked for Marriott Bonvoy. I've worked for Sony. I've worked for Travel and Leisure. I've worked for all these companies that participate in this system of mass tourism and promotion. But I hope that people like myself and people who specialize in sustainable ethical travel keep pushing forward and keep trying to get people to think differently. Instead of coming to Thailand, go to Laos. Instead of going to Venice, go to places in Northern Africa. Instead of going to Mexico, go to Honduras. Of course, these places are not as developed. They are not as easy. But sometimes doing the harder route is A, the most ethical, sustainable way to travel. And B, it's going to provide you with one of the most unique and best experiences possible. I'm like, why do you want a picture at Maya Bay on the same exact beach 
that thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people have done the exact same thing. Why do you want to do that same thing? Why do you want to go to Rome and stand in line for two and a half hours in the hot summer sun with a bunch of people who are also miserable to go see the Colosseum that you can literally take a virtual tour of? And it's going to almost be the same. Mind you, I've been to the Colosseum four times. I love the Colosseum. I'm not, you know, dissing the Colosseum. But it's a cost-benefit thing. And this is why I get frustrated. This is why I flat-out refuse to write any, you know, this is, you know, top ten things, ten things to do in Bangkok. But no, I don't, because I don't want you at the Grand Palace when I want to go there. I don't want you at the night markets when I want to go there. I don't want you to go to the train market and floating markets when I go there. I want you to go to a different place where you can have a more authentic experience. I want to go, and and that's just from the selfish perspective, right? For you, it's like if you want to come to Thailand, if you, whenever you come and visit me, Chris, whenever you come to visit me, I'm giving you a personal and private tour of Bangkok, and I guarantee you, you will not see anything that you're going to find on any Condé Nast top ten list, because it's different for us when we live here. We see behind the veil. And we explore and we try to get away from those tourism crowds. And it breaks my heart when I do go to the Grand Palace or Wat Po or these markets and I see people are miserable. When I tell you they're miserable, they they are hating life. I'm like, you shouldn't come back from vacation more upset than when you left. <laughs> so when I talk about the human element, I understand that there are safety in numbers. I understand it's very difficult to navigate a place where you don't speak the language. Um, I understand how mass media promotes uh, a negative bias towards a lot of places. I understand how it, it makes a lot of people a lot of money to keep tourists on these easy trails. But when I talk about us being more sustainable ethical travelers, I think it's important that we ask ourselves, what do we want the world to look like when our kids and our grandkids become us, when they become that next generation of travelers? I'm 40. I think I got a good 40, 45 years left in me, which means I'm setting the standard for my grandchildren now. And, you know, sometimes, you know, the whole too big to fail kind of thing, I think COVID uh, changed that perspective when it came to travel because COVID shut it down, all the way down. And my hope is now that things are coming back, everything's starting to open up, we can do it in a more ethical and sustainable way. And I'm so happy that so many destinations are saying, nah, we're gonna, we gonna, we gonna preserve this. We're gonna do a lot better now, uh, now that we've had this great reset. Absolutely, I love that. And I, I really encourage everything you just said because I think that is the case, especially like the bigger cities when people travel there, they want to get that classic photo. Why not get something different and go find a, a mm -hmm. small mom and pop restaurant and support them? The ones with the thousand tourists, they're fine. Go find something off the beaten path and what a much more enhanced and enriched experience a person will have. Yeah, yeah you know, I was just in uh, I was up in Thessaloniki on a on a trip. And we ended up uh, taking this very small tour. And it was actually, I didn't even want to, I was exhausted. And But one of my friends really wanted to go on a tour and they needed another person. So I was like, okay, I'll go. So it was three of us and one of the tourism uh, directors. Literally just in a car instead of a bus because it was such a small group. Uh, so we go to um, the birthplace of Aristotle. So we're up there. Um, we go see the, all the ruins. We go through the fort. And it was just a phenomenal experience. Um, and since it was such a small group, it was only three of us, we ended up getting access that other people, tour groups, no way in the world they could have had. We ended up getting information and introductions. Um, and she happened to be friends with a local restaurant owner who was actually closed for the season because we went at the end of tourist season. They had already closed the beachside restaurant. Uh, we had the entire restaurant to ourselves. He opened up and cooked specifically for us. And when we left, he ended up giving, uh, he gave me a uh, this big liter of, uh, of, of um, Greek olive oil, some ouzo, and um, there was something else. I think it was like uh, grape leaves, uh, grape leaves, I believe. And he wouldn't let us pay. He wouldn't let us pay. And it's like wow. those kind of experiences you do not have when you've got 30 people all on the same bus. And, and and again, like these, 
these things will be more expensive, definitely. But I promise you they will be significantly more fulfilling. Yeah, absolutely. And what a cool opportunity. Like, you gained so much from that. And, and I bet they absolutely love oh. having you there. Like, that's everything compared it was to... Great. It was Yeah. Funny. Compared to being in a place it was where, a like great, you said, yeah, it was, it was like, funny. I was... Uh... Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. So it's funny. Like, same day, we end up going to this uh, small village. And at the village, the village is like a fairy tale. I'll, I'll, I'll have to send you a link to it. Uh, it's like a little fairy tale. And they specialize in uh, honey. And they specialize in this honey liquor. And I ended up, you know, trying the honey liquor. It was phenomenal. And the honey was just delicious, different kind of honey. I actually have some, and, and they ended up getting uh, a gift. But I'm uh, standing outside, and I'm wearing one of my uh, workout shirts, muscle factory shirts. I'm a bigger guy. guy I, I power lift. And, um, and so people just generally approach me, uh, just like, oh, you're a big guy, muscles, are you looking? Oh, oh, thank you. So the guy approaches me, uh, and he's, hey, he's like, hey, I really like your shirt. And I go, oh, really? I was like, well, thank you, man. I was like, oh, this is from my gym back home in Bangkok. He said, oh, man, it's a really good, uh, really nice shirt. And I say, hey, I was like, is this your cafe? And he was saying, I was like, oh, yeah, this is my cafe. You want to take a look? I'm like, yeah, sure. And he gave me like a tour and just a beautiful cafe. And I said, hey, man, um, you like my shirt? Let me get let me get you one. He was like, "Oh no, don't worry." I was like, "No, I'm going to I'm go, when I get home, I'm going to get a Muscle Factory shirt in your size, and I'm going to ship it over to you." And to this day, me and him are still good friends. Like we still get, like keep in touch, and I'm going to go visit him uh, when I get back to Europe this summer. But it was like just that human connection. You cannot have those connections in a massive tour group. I mean, you might get here and there, but. You know, people are significantly more comfortable with approaching one or two people as opposed to 25, 30 people who are, are following around a sign and a megaphone. Yeah, absolutely. And how cool. You have a friend for life now. Yeah. Yeah, I always say I can't get, there's not a, there's not a country on the planet I can go to and I don't have a friend. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. I absolutely love that. That's how we should all be living life, making friends here and there. Like, that just. I love yeah. that. So I'm going to quote you from one of your posts, and I would like you to kind of maybe comment a little bit further on what you stated. And you went in and said, struggles exist. We all live with different struggles and issues, none that should be marginalized or mocked. But what we have to understand is these struggles are what makes us stronger. It's what should motivate us to strive, not only for ourselves, but for those who have and will have the same struggles. That is my reason why I push myself beyond my limitations and issues to create something better for those that come after me. Now I ask you, what is your reason why? I love this so much. What struggles have you faced that have served you as your motivation? You know, I, I think... I think there there's nothing specific that I would point to um, because, again, I don't look at things as struggles as much as a normal person, right? Like, for, I have ADHD, right? So for me, that's a superpower. It makes me a better photographer, for example. I, um, so, I, and a lot of people would call me being black a limitation. No, I think being black is a superpower. Uh, some people would say um, a, a woman, you know, traveling in the Middle East is a limited. No, no like, so it, it, it's just a, a matter of perspective, right? Um, when I did uh, specifically to that post, um, my 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 thinking on that post was, you know, we get so wrapped up in these things that we consider um, limitations or issues or problems uh, as kind of an excuse to to be like not lazy, but to well, I can't do it because of this, or I can't do it because of that. And for me, I think everybody has to have a purpose. Like, uh, uh, and not to just make it gender, but like a man needs a purpose in life. I was like, you have to have a reason to be, to do. And I, and, and I think that's how so many people get lost. They don't have a purpose. They don't have a goal. They don't have a, a target to hit. My purpose is looking at, the things that would be considered a limitation or a problem for me or people who came from where I came from and erasing those. We deal with systemic racism in America every single day still. And for me, I think 
when we get abroad, we have a, we get to see the world in a very different light, a very different lens. Specifically, when I moved overseas, I learned that other people have problems. I learned that there are people who races are racist against white people. There are people who are black people who are racist against other black people. Like I, these are things that I don't I didn't know growing up. Like I wasn't exposed to. I had no idea uh, of what was going on in the world. Like you, you look at certain places in the world where there are still there are genocides still happening that have absolutely nothing to do with me or the, the people that I came up with. There are very real struggles around the world. So people have these real struggles and these real issues. So for me, I was like, okay, let's flip this, right? Let's look at, let's find a way to give people the tools to use their struggles in a way to benefit them, to make them stronger, to make them faster, to make them smarter, to make them better, uh, to push them to that next level. The reason that, if you notice on my social media, I, I shout out other marginalized communities constantly. I'm rarely, I'm rarely posting about anything that has anything to do with blackness. Or uh, Clearly, I'm black. Like, I don't have to yell from the mountaintop, I'm blackity black, black, black. I'm black, clearly. But when I have a platform, my friends are LGBTQIA. My friends are women. My friends are physically disabled. My friends are over 60. I've got friends uh, who run the gamut of, 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 of problems, of issues, and things that we can address and we can help with. It pushes me to help those that can come behind me and say, look, I got through this. These are my limitations. These are, this is what I had to deal with to get here, and you can get there too. And on that journey, I'm going to bring as many people from marginalized situations and communities as possible. And here's the crazy thing. Everybody is from a marginalized situation in the background. We like to dissect everything and, and compartmentalize because that's who we are. We're humans. Like, it makes life so much easier if we could put things in these little boxes, right? But everybody comes from that background. So what I'm talking about, I'm not talking about people of color. I'm not talking about, uh, you know, uh, Burmese people. I'm not talking about disabled people. I'm talking about humans. I'm talking about everybody because we all come from a place of marginalization. Everybody has something in their past, be it, you know, self-inflicted, uh, be it societal, be it family, something that was harming you, holding you back and, and causing you issues that you can look and say, hey, what can I do to make sure this doesn't happen to somebody else? Or what can I do to use my trauma to help another community prosper? And push forward. What can I learn from their struggle and their journey to liberation for my community and our issues and my problems? Like, how can I adjust? What lessons can I learn from that person that I met on some random train in Botswana? Right? So, you know, with that, my biggest thing is humans helping humans and us trying to leave a legacy. You know, I close out every video on YouTube leave the world better than you found it. And people constantly complain, spend so much time bitching and moaning about how bad social media is and how bad the governments are. And how, I'm like, yo, I don't have time for that, yo. I'm just trying to make it better, just a little bit better, like 0.0001% better than I found it. And it, it was a funny thing. One of my goals, people always ask me why I smile so much and why I'm so happy. It, it, and trust me, if you see me frown or angry, run, because it's, it's a problem. <laughs> I, I try to make somebody smile or laugh every single day that I'm out that I don't know. Now, imagine what the world would be like if everybody did that. If you just tried to make somebody smile or laugh that you don't know. I don't care where in the world you are or where you're from. If you move through the world with positivity, that ripple effect is powerful. Very, very powerful. And that's just a simple, just a simple thing that we all could do. But people don't. But people don't. And, and, and you know, it's heartbreaking, but all I can control is one person, me. Ultimately, I'm only in control of my actions. So that's my purpose. And I just hope that I set the example and a, a lot more people figure out what their purpose is. And it's something that can help make the world a better place. 
Absolutely. And you're right. It is that ripple effect, you know, where you do what you make somebody else feel better. Maybe they're having a really crappy day and you just pay them a compliment mm -hmm. or you get them to smile and all of a sudden they can manage the traffic issue that they face five minutes down the road later a little bit yep. more with grace. It's like, it's amazing what yeah. can happen. You with don't kindness. know what you don't know. Like it, it, it's, it's, I, I, I can't tell you how many times I've been having a atrocious day and I just, I said, like, Hey, what's up? I'm like, hey, what's going on? And it just shift. It just flipped from that. Or how many times I've, I've complimented somebody. I was like, yo man, that's a dope hat. And like, you see, Oh shit, man, thank you. I appreciate it, man. I was like, 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 because I personally, this is just me. I'm not saying be fair. I authentically care or I really like something. I just, if I won't just fake and say, I like somebody's hat. If I don't, I authentically like somebody's hat. And I'm like, it is even more fun when you do it in a culture that they aren't used to it. Like we like Germany. Oh my God. I love messing with Germans. Like I adore, I know this is a big, this is a big um, stereotype that Germans, I've I loved Germany. Some of my closest friends are Germany and a lot don't fit the stereotype, but there are cultural norms in certain places. And you know, getting compliments in the United States is just super common. Like, you know, people always, people generally are, are very friendly and very open, but there are places in the world, and, and yeah, I would say a lot of part of Central and Eastern Europe are, is that way, where uh, people aren't used to being complimented. But you make a compliment, and it opens that window. And, oh, where, where are you from? You're American? Yeah, I'm American. Like, oh, I can tell. I can tell. Like, How can you tell I'm American? It's like, oh, because you're, like, you're, you're black, and like, you're loud, and your accent. I'm like, okay, cool. It's like, oh, what are you doing here? And then it opens up this whole dialogue where now I have somebody in this city or this place around the world that's willing to you know, help me because I just did something very small. I gave them a, just a compliment that they weren't expecting, they weren't used to, and it changed their entire day. So many times I'll do it and you know the, the, the interaction will turn into an hour conversation or I'll get a personal guide for the day. And sometimes it's just you know a stern look on, hmm? and they keep it moving. But here's the crazy thing. When somebody else controls your narrative, you have to make an effort to pull that back, to return it to yourself. So within our community, African-Americans, there are a lot of people who say that, oh, the media gives this false representation of us, of our community around the world. And you get the same thing, you know, based on political positions and whatnot. For me, I understand that a lot of times I travel the world, I'm the first African-American and not a lot of people have met, especially at this point. I've been in 95 countries, um, and a lot of Americans in general don't travel the world, and even fewer African-Americans travel the world. So a lot of instances, I am the very first African-American that somebody's met in person. So when somebody sees a article or a representation, a piece of you know African-Americans being these big, mean, angry people, they were like, no, I met a really nice African-American guy in Sophia. Or I met this really, really cool black guy in Antalya. Or no, I met this really great guy in Okinawa. And like, that's not true at all. Like, it might be true for some, but not all, because I had that meeting, right? So, you know, it's, it's that ripple effect that's, it really is a powerful. And I'm just one dude. I'm just one guy. But I'm going to keep doing it because not only do I enjoy it, I also believe in it. I truly believe in that ripple effect. Um, is that butterfly effect concept. You know, people say, oh, I'll go back in time and I would change this. I wouldn't change a thing. I wouldn't go back in time and change a thing. But I can be sure of how I behave in the future. So as many people who've met me have a positive experience. That's amazing. And I love the idea of compliments. And if you're not traveling worldwide, start where you are now. Start the, creating the habit of giving compliments now. And then when you travel or go out, whether it's at work or running errands, you're establishing that positivity within yourself and giving out that vibe. So when you do travel, it's just second nature like it is with you. And not even just compliments, help, just simple help. It's like if you see somebody like looking at a map or looking at uh, looking lost, hey, you need some help, you need some direct, somebody struggling with a bag, hey, you need some help, oh, hey, let me open the door for you. Like little acts of kindness go a long way. A really long way with you saying that it reminded me when I was in Oregon during my internship and I was broke, super, super broke. I was at the grocery store. They had a sale. I was so excited to buy food and I had more than I could carry. But 
I was standing there and this mom and her daughter came in to the grocery store, saw me, said, do you need some help? I said, no, I'm okay. And they just started taking things from me and held it until we could put it on the conveyor belt. And I will forever remember them. Yeah. They never had to do that. And it keeps me thinking like beautiful. Oregon is an amazing space because of that experience. Yeah. And it's just those experiences spread and, and you know, play it for and pay it for it, pay it for it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's it for this episode with Eric Prince. On our next episode, we continue our conversation with Eric and he goes into where he gets his positive persona. I just want to be something different. I just want to be something else. I just want to be an alternative to what's, what's being pushed around out there because negativity, that is toxic. And it's easy. Negativity yeah. is so easy. It's a lot more impressive to be positive and loving and high energy and focused and driven and determined than it is to just be angry and negative and blame everything and everybody else. So hey, thanks for listening to Journey to the Rise. Please do follow us on your podcast app so you have the latest episode downloaded. If you want to follow us on Instagram, our account is at Journey to the Rise Podcast. This episode is researched, produced, and edited by Girl Boss Productions. And please remember to be kind to you and fill your cup up with love. When we are kind to ourselves, it makes it easier to be kind to others. I'm Lucretia, and you've been listening to Journey to the Rise. <laughs>